Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning, and we will be in Mark chapter 16, as was just read for you. This is the final chapter of the Gospel of Mark, and you'll be helped if you turn there. But uh, before we get going, let's open with prayer. Our Father, we need your word to sink deep into our hearts this morning. We pray that you would open our eyes and open our ears to see and to hear what is true and right about Jesus. There are many opinions about Jesus in our world today, but we want your opinion of him to sink deep into our hearts this morning. We pray that we would believe the word of Christ. We thank you that you raised him from the dead. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, this morning we come to the end of our study in the Gospel of Mark. I didn't count the number of weeks, but it's been a lot of them. 16 chapters worth of, uh, of a gospel. This is the shortest of the four gospels as well, if you can believe it. Our sermon series was called The Amazing True Story of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I've been blessed by our study together as we've looked again and again and again at why Jesus really is a hero. He is the hero of the Gospel of Mark, and I, I trust that you love him more now that you know more of him. By way of review, the story of Jesus has been a remarkable one. If you've been with us, you already know these things, but he has performed lots of miracles, remarkable miracles, such as feeding 5,000 men with just Five loaves of bread and two fish. He's casted out demons. He's healed the sick. And he has taught with unparalleled wisdom and authority. He has had no equal as a teacher or a healer throughout the entire Gospel of Mark. And everybody has recognized that to one degree or another. But as you know, the story didn't end with just him as a teacher and a healer. He also died on the cross, didn't he, for us. We saw that. Last week and the week before, especially we saw how Jesus was betrayed by one of his own disciples named Judas Iscariot. That's a remarkable piece of information, isn't it? Against the backdrop of such a remarkable figure as Jesus Christ. He was tried in the middle of the night by the Jewish religious leaders. And of course, he was sentenced to be crucified by Pontius Pilate, who was the the governor of Judea in those days for Rome. Jesus was crucified on a hill outside of Jerusalem, and his suffering, as horrific as it was from the sense of his being crucified and beaten and spat upon and so on and so forth, it was even more horrific because of what he was doing on the cross. He had no business being there. He was a completely righteous man. Righteous people don't get sentenced to death unless it's unjustly. Jesus was there, as we saw, bearing away the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins. That's remarkable if you think about it. Who is it hanging on the tree for us? And at the same time, the story doesn't end with Mark chapter 15. Aren't you so happy for that? That would be a bad end, actually, as great as the cross is. It's no good for us if he's still dead. Do you know who gets raised from the dead? Righteous people get raised from the dead. And if Jesus doesn't get raised from the dead, 
God doesn't think he's righteous. That is not good news for us. God would have agreed with everyone else in Mark 15, right? Everyone thinks Jesus is a criminal. Pilate hates his guts. Certainly the religious leaders hate his guts. And apparently if Jesus is still in the tomb today, God must hate his guts too, right? Righteous people get raised from the dead, not wicked people. Righteous people alone get raised from the dead to life. And that is what we see in our passage in Mark 16 this morning. And this is, this is good news. Our world needs this, don't we? Do you know our world? In the last few days, I mean, I just could have picked any number of news stories, so this is just what I thought of. In the last few days, we read about that little British baby boy, Charlie Gard. He was 11 months old. He had a, gene- a genetic disorder because of which he couldn't see, hear, swallow, or even cry. He couldn't move his arms or legs. He couldn't even breathe on his own, and he just died. What sort of world is this, right? Do you, do you feel that? Sometimes we just pass over those sorts of news stories. Well, there's just something else to, to skip over, but this is not a good world. This past week as well, of course, North Korea has continued to test intercontinental ballistic missiles. Maybe they'll reach the capability of of reaching the western coast of the United States. Who knows? We've read about what all the struggles in Venezuela, the struggles for power there. This is not a good world. This world needs Mark 16. This world needs a message of hope, and Christianity has exactly the message that the world needs. Our message is a message full of hope and life and everlasting joy, but it's not because of how great we are. I think that's one of the points of Mark 16. It is because of this great hero, Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. I have four points this morning. As I said, you'll be helped if you have your Bibles open to Mark 16. I have four points. The first point is a bit of a different kind of point. I'm just going to let you know up front, this is not a normal point, but, but I think we need to deal with it. And that has to do with the, the ending of the Gospel of Mark. After we deal with that question, then we'll deal with the women. There were some women at the tomb. We'll talk about their insufficient devotion. Then we'll talk about the resurrection of Jesus and his forgiveness and restoration of his people. So that's where we're going. Number one, the ending of the Gospel of Mark. And here we're dealing with verses 9 through 20. If you noticed, Kat read verses 9 to 20. Did you see that? It wasn't just verses 1 to 8. She read the entire 20 verses. Thank you for doing that. Some of you may be wondering, what's the deal, right? Why, why is there a question about the end of the gospel? And, and, and here's what I want you to do. You'll have to look at your Bibles. And uh, between verses 8 and 9, do you see that? This is actually, I, I had the Pew Bible with me, so I know it's in the Pew Bible. Between verses 8 and 9, there's a little something that says, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. Do you see that? And then verse 9 begins with double brackets, and verse 20 ends the double brackets. Is everyone with me? I know this is a weird point. I'm just, this is not normal. 
Well, what's going on here, right? Well, the, the Bible translators of pretty much every modern Bible translation do something like this, where they just give you a little note for verses 9 through 20. Maybe it's a footnote. Maybe it's brackets. Maybe it's a little marginal note or whatever. And they say something like, well, there's some uncertainty regarding who wrote these verses, verses 9 through 20. Some of the earliest manuscripts, not all, but some of them end with verse 8. And some end with verse 20. So, the question is, where did Mark end his gospel? Now, very briefly, when I say, and the Bible translators talk about these manuscripts, what are we talking about? Well, we're talking merely about the copies of the original. The copies of the original gospel of Mark. So, when did Mark write his gospel? This is the year 2017. It was almost 2,000 years ago now. It's pretty remarkable that we have an almost 2,000-year-old book that we've been preaching through uh, this year. We still have many copies of this. We don't have the original copy, the original of, uh, of, of Mark, but we have many copies. And these copies are called manuscripts. There were these guys called scribes all throughout the centuries, even from very early on. I actually think Mark himself probably made copies of his own gospel for safekeeping and for dissemination and that sorts of things. But also, after Mark, there were many scribes who gave their lives to copying books of the Bible. This was way before the invention of the printing press, which was not to occur for another 1,500 years. And this was way before copy machines and flash drives and CDs, right? Or whatever, however you... Dropbox, I don't know. (laughs) However you save your stuff nowadays on your drives, this was way before that sort of thing. So back then, the only way that something could be copied was by hand. You had to take a, a, a pen of sorts and copy out the entire gospel of Mark by hand if it was going to be handed off to another person. Aren't you grateful, by the way, for these scribes who did that? They have bestowed on us such a benefit, haven't they? By giving their lives to copying the Word of God. Otherwise, we wouldn't have it today. And in the providence of God, we don't just have like one or two of these copies. We have many copies of the Gospel of Mark. Isn't that great to know? It's great to know that Christianity's basis doesn't rest on only one copy, like some other religions. We have many copies, not just one. God has been really good to us to preserve his word and to assure us that it has been preserved. Well, so back to the end of the Gospel of Mark. How does this affect us today? Well, when your Bible translators say some of the earliest manuscripts don't include verses 9 through 20, what they're saying is some of the copies, some of the early copies don't have those verses. Those copies end with verse 8. That's interesting. This is, of course, a very important question for us because if you're a Bible-believing Christian like I am, we want to know what the Bible says and what it doesn't say, right? We want to know not just what an ancient blog writer was blogging. We want to know what God inspired a guy to write, right? Every word kind of does matter if if you're like me. We want to know. So where did Mark end? Well, it could have been either verse 8, could have been verse 20. If you look down into your pew Bible, actually, there's a, there's a number of endings. You'll have to look in the footnote number nine to see those. I'm not getting into that today. But there's a number of endings. These two are the most probable 
I tend to agree with most modern scholars that Mark did not write verses 9 through 20. I don't have time to get into this in any detail. The earliest manuscripts do weigh against Mark having written verses 9 to 20. And also, I'll just give you one other reason. It's difficult to see why verses 9 to 20 were ever omitted in those earliest manuscripts. I mean, if you had these verses that Mark wrote, why would they ever have been omitted? They're great verses. I actually like the verses quite a bit. I'm glad that cat read them. They're good, right? And yet, it's hard to see. No, I'm sorry. It's easy to see, rather, why someone would have added them later. Look at verse 8. Does this sound like a good ending to the gospel? Verse 8, they went out, and this is the women, and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. That doesn't sound like a drop-the-mic sort of ending, right? (laughs) That's not a great ending. The women are afraid. I'm done. That's not like a great commission sort of ending, right? That's not like a go out and preach the gospel sort of ending. So, so I think it's, 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 it's easy to see why a scribe, or maybe more than one scribe, would have come along later and said, you know, we actually know the gospel says they didn't, this is in the end, right? They actually did a lot more things. They, they weren't silent after all, forever. Jesus had resurrection appearances and so on and so forth. So I think it's easier to see why these verses would have been added, but not the other way around, you see. Well, I'm not going to give you a definitive answer, and I don't want this to be a lecture. I'd actually like to talk about the resurrection. So, but I want to give you just a few thoughts as you wrestle with this. And the reason I want to give you these thoughts is because some of you may be wondering now, well, how do I know what Mark wrote at all, right? Everything's up for grabs. Not just these verses, but maybe everything. So I want to give you a few points. Number one, what we're dealing with this morning is really rarely preached from the pulpit because it rarely happens in the Bible. This is not normal. This is actually a a very rare occurrence for Scripture. And that this is rare is quite amazing given how old the Bible is. So this is not a normal thing. Number two, when these sorts of things do happen, these manuscript differences rarely affect essential points of Christian doctrine. Do you know what I mean by that? The, the, the points of Christian doctrine that we hold to be true, we love them, these differences don't really affect those doctrines. That's important to know. The virgin birth of Jesus Christ isn't hanging on these sorts of things. What the cross of Jesus Christ means for us isn't hanging on these sorts of things. The resurrection even the appearances and so on, they're not hanging on these sorts of things. In fact, I think verses 9 through 20 are a summary of the ending of Matthew, Luke, and John. Let me illustrate this for you. It's only in John's gospel that we know that Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene. And guess what? It happens in verse 9, doesn't it? In Mark 16 this long ending, it's in verse 9. Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. We know that from John's gospel. Look at verses 12 and 13. Verse 12 says, After these things he appeared, Jesus appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking in the country. What's that referring to? Have you heard of the story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus? That's from the Gospel of Luke. But it's here, isn't it? Quite clearly, one of them, their name was Cleopas. 
And Jesus appeared to them on the road to Emmaus. We know that, and it's here, isn't it, in, this, in these verses. We also know from verse 14 in the other Gospels, specifically the Gospel of Luke and John, that Jesus appeared to the 11 disciples. Judas Iscariot wasn't there on the scene anymore, but there were the 11 disciples that Jesus appeared to. We know that, don't we, from the other Gospels. Which Gospel has the Great Commission? It's Matthew, right? The end of Matthew famously has this great commission. Go, make disciples of all these nations, baptizing and teaching them to observe, so on and so forth. And that's here in our ending as well, verses 15 and 16, right? Where it says, Jesus said, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation, etc. We also know that Jesus ascended into heaven, That's at the end of Luke's gospel and at the beginning of Acts. So twice and then other other places as well. We see that Jesus ascended. And if you look in our ending, that's what verse 19 says, right? Verse 19, so then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, he was taken up. He's ascending, right? Into heaven. And we also know from the book of Acts that the apostles after Pentecost preached the gospel and performed many miracles. Isn't that what verse 17 says? Look at verse 17 in Mark chapter 16. It says, These signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. That happens in the book of Acts, right? They will speak in new tongues. That happens in the book of Acts. I'm going to skip verse 18. Down to verse 20. It says, And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. That happened, didn't it? In the book of Acts. Many signs accompanied the preaching of the gospel. Many miracles. Just read the book of Acts. The most difficult verse of the end here is verse 18. Verse 18 says, They will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. We have this snake handling sort of verse here and poison drinking verse, and it says they won't get hurt. Well, that's kind of a difficult verse, and and, and however you understand that verse, I don't want you to go out into the Sonoran Desert this afternoon and start picking up rattlesnakes and maybe drinking some arsenic on the side as a sign of your faith in Jesus. Don't do it. You will die today. Don't do it, okay? Everyone clear on that? However you understand verse 18, don't do that. This This is not even a command, right? (laughs) It's not a command for you to go out and do that. It's saying, hey, you're invincible until God wants you to die. Those sorts of things. And if you read the book of Acts, I actually think these sorts of things do happen as well. Do you know the story of Paul on the island of Malta in Acts 28? He's picking up firewood. He's not looking for a viper, but a viper was in the wood. And as he picked up the firewood, it bit him. And all the islanders are looking at him, waiting for him to swell up and die, it says. They kept looking and waiting, and he doesn't swell up and die, does he? And they start thinking, maybe you're a god because you're invincible. You can't die, right? Paul's like, well, I'm not a, I'm not a god, but still, right? It's, it's a great story of a serpent not hurting. Remarkably, not hurting Paul. So actually, verse 18 does happen. I don't know of any example in Acts where poison is drunk. So that one's kind of weird, although there's early church tradition that says that sort of thing also happened. My point, my point in, in, in all of this is to remind you that we're dealing with a, 
a rare sort of occurrence this morning in verses 9 to 20, and that even such a rare occurrence as this doesn't affect essential, historic Christianity. All these things in verses 9 to 20, I think they're great. I think they're a great summary of the end of Matthew, Luke, and John. Another quick point, and then we'll move on, is that we Christians, we don't run from hard questions. Do you know that about Christianity, about our roots? We don't run from asking hard questions. We have a faith that seeks understanding. We don't run and hide evidence. We appreciate evidence. We look at it, we analyze it, we consider it, because our faith is reasonable, not anti-intellectual. We don't check our brains at the door when we come into this room, do we? We think, we look at the evidence, and we trust the Lord. You can trust that the Pew Bibles or whatever modern Bible translation you have in your hands this morning are faithful translations of the original Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. It's the Word of God that you hold in your hands. It brings you life. It is trustworthy and reliable. It's full of the grace of the Lord to you. It's inerrant. It's infallible. You should read your Bible. You should study it. It's the only must-read book in the universe, no matter what publishers tell you. It's the only one. You cherish that book that you have in your hands. I'm not going to give you many reasons why we should trust that our Bible is trustworthy and reliable, but I just want to let you know about this manuscript business. I'm just so grateful to the Lord. We have over 5,000 manuscripts of the New Testament, many of which are very early, written just a copy just a few hundred years after the originals. And it wasn't just one group of scribes doing all the copies, but these copies were found all over the Mediterranean world. So I like to put it this way. The biblical text wasn't preserved by just one group within Christianity, but by Christianity as a whole. Okay, so I just want you to be encouraged to trust what you have is the word of God in your hands. If you want to follow up more on this, I just suggest you getting a good study Bible. The ESV study Bible is a nice example of this. It's not the only one. But at the back of the ESV, there's a collection of short articles on this topic. And uh, one of the titles is called The Reliability of Bible Manuscripts. It's five pages long. That's great, right? I think you can handle five pages. So if you want to follow up, please uh, feel free to look into that, or you can ask me after the sermon. That'd be fine as well. All right, shall we talk about the resurrection of Jesus? Yes, okay. Good, finally, I had to get that out of the way. So this is now point number two, now that we've sort of gotten the ending question out of the way. Point, point number two is the insufficient devotion of the women. There's this business of women at the tomb. Now, just to make sure we're all clear together, uh, Jesus has been crucified and he has been buried by this time. At the, at, the, at the very end of Mark 15, you have the story of the burial of Jesus and you have a guy named Joseph of Arimathea who was a, a respected member of the council. That's the Sanhedrin. He was a big shot in Jerusalem back then. He was looking, it tells us, for the kingdom of God. And in another gospel, it actually says he was Jesus' disciple. That's great, right? So Jesus has this guy, Joseph of Arimathea. He's very rich, and he owns a tomb. 
Not everybody owned a tomb back then, but Joseph did. And Joseph, who did not consent to the decision to crucify Jesus along with his fellows on the Sanhedrin council, he provides this tomb for Jesus to be buried in. And so you have a little paragraph there at the end of Mark 15 about Jesus' burial. I just want to say the reason why it's important for you to know Jesus was buried is because it confirms that Jesus actually did die. He really did die. So he died for our sins, the, the Christian confessions will say, and he was buried. And one of the reasons that that's important is because people who are alive don't get buried. At least they're not supposed to be buried alive. Dead people get buried, right? And Rome was really good at knowing when a person had died. In fact, isn't that what chapter 15, verse 44 and 45 say? It says there that Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus died so soon. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. Verse 45 says, when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Pilate had no business burying someone alive. That wouldn't help him at all. He wanted to make sure that the person was dead before he gets buried. So the burial of Jesus confirms that Jesus really was, was dead. Into chapter 16 we go. It says that the Sabbath was passed, so Saturday's done, and now Sunday morning is upon us. The women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome are all there coming to the tomb to care for the body of Jesus. It tells us in verse 3 that they were wondering who's going to roll away the stone because verse 4 says the stone in front of the door of the tomb was really big. And these, even though there's three women, they're not going to be able to move it on their own. It's a big rock. And so what happens is they find the stones already rolled away for them and they go in and they see an angel. He's called an angel uh, in Matthew's gospel. Here he's called a young man. He's clearly an angel, right? Because he's dressed in dazzling white robes. He alarms them. Angels typically alarm people, right? They're not like cute, cuddly things, apparently. And then, and then uh, sometimes, frequently, like you find this in Acts chapter 1, for instance, angels will even be called young men, right? So this is clearly an, an, an angel that these women will see. And they're alarmed. The angel says, He's alive, go and tell his disciples what's happened. And then, verse 8, they go out astonished and they're afraid. They don't say anything to anybody. It's kind of a a remarkable story, isn't it? And I want to highlight what I'm going to call their insufficient devotion. Were these women devoted to Jesus? It's hard to miss that point, actually. These women love Jesus, don't they? You don't care for someone you don't love, right? They love Jesus. They're devoted to him. And so what happens? They show up at the first moment possible. They had to wait till the Sabbath was over because they were rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. But as soon as the Sabbath's over, they're there at early dawn, it says. Mark says a lot of these time references in verses 1 and 2 quite, quite often. It was early on Sunday morning that they showed up. You can see how much they love Jesus, and they're caring for his body by purchasing spices to not embalm, that had already been taken care of, but to just care for, to take away the stench from the corpse. Do you remember the story of the woman in Mark 14? It's only only two chapters ago. Do you remember that story where the woman anointed Jesus' head with costly perfume? And there were people who were grumbling like, 
why is she wasting all this good stuff? And Jesus said, actually, she's doing a good thing. You're always going to have the poor, he says with you, but she's preparing my body, as it were, in advance for burial. So these women, actually, what they're doing recalls the commendable act of that woman in Mark 14, right? It's, It's the same sort of thing, and that's commendable. Jesus commends that kind of devotion. So I want to be clear on that. I'm not trying to be harsh on these on these women by calling them insufficient in their devotion. But I do think, nevertheless, that their devotion was insufficient. Why do I say this? Jesus told his disciples three times at least, Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10, I'm going to die and be raised again on the third day. Did these women believe him? Like, quite evidently not. And the other disciples didn't either. You, you see that? You don't bring spices to care for a corpse if you think there won't even be a corpse there because he's alive. You see the point? They, they do not expect Jesus not to be there, right? They expect Jesus to be dead still. This was the third day. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, right? On the third day. You don't wonder who's going to roll away the stone from the from the tomb if you think Jesus isn't even in the tomb anymore, right? It's quite clear they expect him to be dead. They don't believe his word. That's insufficient devotion. We've actually seen this sort of insufficiency all throughout the Gospel of Mark. If you've been with us throughout the Gospel of Mark, we, we know who's not the hero of the story. It's not the disciples. You remember? They have been called out for their hardness of heart a number of times. Like when Jesus fed the 5,000, it's big time. They should believe him, right? Right after that, he walks on water. That's really big time. And they don't believe him. They don't believe him. It says that they were afraid. Mark 6.52 says that they didn't understand about the loaves and their hearts were hardened. So they're not really the hero of the story. Of course, climactically so, right before Jesus is about to be arrested, handed over to be crucified, the disciples, Peter's the spokesman for the group, but actually all of them are joining him saying, we'll, we'll never fall away from you, Jesus. And what, like a matter of minutes maybe later, they're gone, right? They're not the hero. They're not the trustworthy paragons of virtue here in the Gospel of Mark. And I think the women fit into that really well here. They're not any different than the men. They're the same, aren't they? Fundamentally, they failed to grasp, they failed to grasp what Jesus had promised. Now, some people debate about verse 8, if you want to skip down to verse 8, whether verse 8 is positive about them or negative. I think it's negative. Verse verse 8 says, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, some, some say, well, that, that, that afraid business, at the end, that's a good fear because it's good to fear God. And when it says they didn't say anything to anyone, what it means is they didn't turn aside to the right or to the left in obeying the angel's command, but they went straight to the disciples and said exactly what they should have said. Well, I don't think that's likely. Because when it says they said nothing to anyone, I think it means they said nothing to anyone. I mean, I'm just reading the text It means they didn't say anything to anyone. Now, of course, this isn't the end of the story. Do you know the story of the women? Of course, they finally did, right? Mary Magdalene tells them. The other women tell them. This isn't the end of the story. 
But still, verse 8 doesn't ring positive, does it? I think even there, you get a sense for these women are so overwhelmed. They've just seen an angel telling them that Jesus isn't here, he's alive, and they should go tell. And they're like, what? Wait, what? You know, they're just speechless. And that's not a good thing. They should have seen this coming, right? But, but they didn't. So their devotion is, in this sense, rather insufficient. I want to make a quick application point here. They are not the hero of the story, and neither are we. Can we just get that out there? We are not the heroes of the story of the Gospel of Mark or of our own lives. We want to be the knights in shining armor, at least those of us who are guys in the room, but we're really not, are we? There is one hero that we have seen throughout the Gospel of Mark, and it's not you. It's not me. Our devotion is very similar to the women's devotion. It's genuine, if you're a Christian. You really do love the Lord Jesus, don't you? But it's insufficient. Aren't there times when you don't grasp the word of the Lord to you? Aren't there times when you don't believe the Bible, even though it's clear and maybe said three times, right? You still don't believe it? I think we're similar, actually, to the women at this point. I want to be clear. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit. And these women were about to receive the Spirit 50 days later at Pentecost, right? So it's coming for them, and it has come for us. So there is a difference between what's happening in their lives and what would happen later. The Holy Spirit does strengthen our devotion, doesn't he? He strengthens us to be more and more devoted to the Lord. We have the kind of strength and boldness that we find in the book of Acts, more so than we find in Mark 16. But still, I think the basic point remains, isn't our devotion insufficient? We are not the hero of our story. The good life doesn't come in you being your own hero. It comes when you know another hero and you belong to him. The good life, the meaningful life, you want to be satisfied? It comes not through your own building and achievement, but it comes through knowing Jesus. It comes through being devoted to him, connected to him, being on his team. You know the pleasures at God's right hand forevermore that we read from Psalm 16? That's not pleasures that you can achieve, quite frankly. And I'm, and I'm with you. We're not, we can't make it. But there is one who was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of the Father, and it's there that we can find, connected to that hero, pleasures forevermore. There we find the desires of our heart fulfilled. I think that's what we can learn from the insufficient devotion of the women. Point number three. Let's talk about this hero. Jesus has been raised from the dead. It's high time that we look at the hero. Verse 6, the angel says it quite clearly. The angel said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Jesus has been raised from the dead. Very clearly. This tells us a couple things about Jesus. Number one, he always does what he says he's going to do, 
Remember how Jesus told his disciples, I'm going to be raised from the dead on the third day? Well, guess what? He was raised from the dead on the third day, exactly like he said. He is pretty trustworthy, apparently. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know who's in your life, who's the person you trust the most. Hopefully you have people like that in your life. But let's say you know a guy who says, look, I'm about to die, but I'm going to be raised up on the third day after I die. And, and then that happens exactly like he says it would happen. I'd say the guy's pretty trustworthy, right? I mean, for real, when we talk about resurrection from the dead, this is an impossibility for us to do to ourselves. But Jesus, in John chapter 10, says, I have authority to lay down my life and to take it up again. You can trust this guy. He is here to be trusted, and he has proved it by being raised from the dead. Maybe you find it hard to trust someone today. Maybe you've been burned by people who frankly aren't trustworthy. It's hard to place your trust in anyone. Place your hope in Jesus. He is the solid rock. He is that hero. He always does what he says he's going to do. Sometimes we have good intentions when we say we'll do things. Well, Jesus not only has good intentions, but he has no limitations on the ability to carry out what he said he would do. He proved it at the empty tomb. So that's, that's, that's one thing this resurrection business tells us about Jesus. Something else that it tells us is that Jesus has, in fact, defeated sin and death. Now, sometimes we hear people say about the dead, they'll always live on in our hearts, in our minds, in our memories. Maybe you've seen even on a gravestone, sometimes this is written, to live in the hearts of those we love is not to die. Well, that's a nice thing to say about a person you love and they loved you and all that. That's not what the angel's saying here. He's not just saying to the women, hey, look, you see his body here, it's still here, but his memory will live on in your hearts and minds. He'll always be with you in spirit or something like that. That's clearly not what he says. Did you all see the emphasis of verse 6? It's on the emptiness of the tomb. His body's not there. Do you see that? I mean, the angel can't say it any clearer. Verse 6, he says, Yeah, you seek Jesus of Nazareth who's crucified. He has risen. And here's what I mean. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. The tomb is empty. It's not just a sort of spiritual resurrection going on here. It's not some sort of metaphorical, nice, fuzzy sorts of feelings about a person you love. His body's not here. This is a bodily resurrection. It's a physical resurrection. The angel's saying he's really alive, as much so as he was before. The body of Jesus is alive. We got a glimpse of Jesus' authority over death way back in Mark chapter 5. Jairus' daughter was 12 years old. Do you remember what happened? She died. And Jesus said, hey guys, no problem. She's asleep. And everyone's like, no, she's not. We know the difference, right? Someone's dead. Someone's asleep. That's a big difference, right? We, we know she's dead, Jesus. And Jesus raised her from the dead as easily as you or I might Wake up someone who's even having a light sleep. It's just no problem for Jesus at all. What, what did that mean for us to see that with Jairus' daughter? It meant that Jesus has come to deal with death, to overcome death. 
to deal a final blow to death itself. How did he do it? Well, Romans 5, Romans 5.12 tells us the reason death exists is because of sin. Death entered the world through sin. Sin is a culprit. When you think about sin, I want you to think bad thoughts about sin because it's, it's our enemy, right? It's our culprit. And it's a reason why death is in the world. Romans 6.23, very famous verse, the wages of sin is, is death, right? If you sin, you die. It's the result. It's the effect of, of sin. Sin's a problem. Do you see that? Sin is a root problem. And when you deal with sin, then you get death too, right? Because it flows from sin. So how does Jesus defeat death? He defeats sin, doesn't he? That's the cross. That's the cross of Jesus Christ. The sting of death is sin. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us Jesus took the stinger out of death, right? He paid in full the penalty for our sins. There's no more condemnation for sin for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no more guilt in life, we sang a moment ago. There's no more fear in death. You see the connection between those? Guilty because of sin. Therefore, you have fear in death. They're gone, both of them when Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead. Jesus' resurrection is, in fact, the proof that he was victorious in paying for our sins. Do you ever wonder, was Jesus' death sufficient for me? I mean, that's great that he died for sins, but did he die for my sins? Because I have a lot of sins. They're pretty bad. Was his death really sufficient for me? And the answer is, Well, the tomb is empty, right? I mean, that tells you something about what he did on Good Friday. Namely, he's not still paying the wages for your sin, which is death. You see? The payment's in full already, right? There's not a continuation here of a wrath-absorbing experience of Jesus. It's finished. It's done. The empty tomb says the death of Jesus for our sin was sufficient Remember, who gets raised from the dead? Not wicked people, right? What does God think of Jesus on Easter Sunday morning? He must think he's righteous, right? He raises his son from the dead as a way of saying to the rulers who killed him on Good Friday, this is what I think about my son. He's a good guy. He is my son. He's righteous. And just like he did at the baptism way back in Mark chapter 1, I'm well pleased with this guy. I still am. You see that? And raise it from the dead. And that means for us, the empty tomb speaks loud and clear. Death and Hades have no power over Jesus or anyone who belongs to him. He holds the keys, Revelation 1 says, to death and Hades. The empty tomb tells us that Jesus has the power of an indestructible life. Ooh, that's a good phrase. He can't die. He's like the Incredible Hulk, except better, right? He doesn't need to get angry to be invincible, right? He's actually way better. He's indestructible now that he's been raised from the dead. And therefore, he will be our mediator, our priest, our advocate, our, shall I say it, righteousness forever. The empty tomb tells us that death no longer has dominion over Jesus And if it doesn't have dominion over him, it won't have dominion over you either, if you belong to Jesus. 
As far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our transgressions from us. Psalm 103 says, is that true? Well, the empty tomb says it. You see that? Is it true that if we're united with Jesus in a death like his, then we'll be united with Jesus in a resurrection like his? It is. The empty tomb says it loud and clear. If you belong to the king, the victory of the king belongs to you. Do you see that? He wins it for his people. So when we speak as Christians of our hope of the resurrection from the dead, we're not talking about warm, fuzzy feelings about one another. I mean, hopefully we love one another. We're talking about a massive hope, a massive hope for people who actually die, who go to the doctor and hear those unexpected bad news and they die. This is a message of hope for them. If they belong to Jesus, there's hope. This is a message of hope, actually, for all of us, no matter what stage of life you're in. Wonder if you get good news from the doctor. It's still for you, isn't it? Wonder if your bank account is low. Wonder if your bank account is full. Both of you. This is for you, isn't it? We need to preach this gospel to ourselves daily. So, Point number three, Jesus has defeated sin and death, and we know that because the angel said, he's not here, he is alive. Number four, and finally, Jesus forgives, restores, and commissions his people. This comes from verse seven. Verse seven says, which is the second part of the angel's message, go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you'll see him just as he told you. So this is an announcement after the resurrection announcement that that there's going to be an appearance of Jesus in Galilee. You're going to go see him. He's not here, but you're going to see him, namely in Galilee. So you better get yourselves up to Galilee. Tell his disciples to get themselves up to Galilee because that's where he's going to be. Go, go, go tell them that. And what is striking here is that this promise of Jesus, I'm going to go before you to Galilee, that's already been promised in Mark 14, verse 28. So Jesus was in the context there of, uh, he was about to be arrested. They were on the Mount of Olives that night, and Jesus predicted to his disciples, hey guys, I just want you to know, you're going to be, you're going to fall away from me tonight. You're going to deny me, he says to Peter, three times. And all the disciples say, well, you're crazy. We're going to stay with you. The shepherd's not going to be struck. The sheep aren't going to be scattered. We're going to stay with you, Jesus. Nothing bad's going to happen to you. We got our little swords with us. And Jesus said, no, actually, it's going to happen exactly like I say. And then he gives this promise that the angel echoes. I love this. The promise in the midst of that event, Jesus says, after all this is done, I'm going to go ahead of you to Galilee where you will see me. That is a promise not for a brow beating. It's a promise of forgiveness. It's a promise of restoration. It's a promise of commission. Once the sheep are scattered, I'm going to bring you back in Galilee. Do you remember the story where Peter is forgiven by Jesus three times? Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. Peter, do you love me? You know that I love you, etc. That happened in Galilee by the Sea of Tiberias, which is another name for the Sea of Galilee in John chapter 21, right? So it's in Galilee. 
Go to Galilee, Jesus said. I'm going to forgive you there. And the great thing is, Jesus didn't fold on his promise. We've already said that he's trustworthy, and here it is again. Do you see the angel said? Go up to Galilee just as he told you. His plan A is still the plan, right? He knew this was going to happen, and he's going to not go back on his word. He's going to be faithful. I love in Mark 16, verse 7, when the angel said, you go and tell his disciples, he names Peter. Did you see that? He says, you go and tell his disciples and Peter that he's going to go ahead and see you in Galilee. I love that. Peter said, I mean, the angel says about Peter, I know what Peter's done. Peter has denied Jesus three times. So women, when you go and tell the disciples, you better look straight Peter in the eye and say, get yourself up to Galilee. Not because Jesus is going to browbeat you, but because he's going to forgive you. He's going to restore you. The sheep that are scattered, you listening, Peter? They're going to be gathered again under the shepherd. Jesus is not surprised when his people sin. He knew Peter was going to deny him three times. He knew all of his disciples would fall away. And he's not surprised when you sin either. He's not in shock when that happens. He knew all of your sins before you ever committed one. By the way, you shouldn't hide from your sins then. Don't hide your sins from God. He knows, doesn't he? He knows all all about your heart. Don't hide that. Confess it to him. And yet, in the midst of this knowledge of the disciples' sin, he says, I'm going to forgive. I'm going to restore you. I died for the pardon I'm giving to you. That is a secure offer of peace and restoration. It's not just a a willy-nilly, sure, I forgive you, let's act like it didn't happen sort of a thing, right? Sweep it under the rug. I died for it, so I'm going to give it to you. It is a forgiveness and a pardon that is paid for in full. Your peace is secure because the chastisement for your peace has fallen upon him. There's no condemnation then, is there, for those who are in Christ Jesus. I don't know where you are today in your relationship to the Lord, but I just want to encourage you, you should belong to him. He's more trustworthy than any person you know. He's the only hero for the entire world, and that includes your own personal story. He is everything you need. So run from your sins. Confess them. Own them to him. Don't excuse your sins and justify them as if they're okay. They're not. And run to the Lord. Find your hope and forgiveness in him. Because in Jesus, we have always an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Let's pray together.